Hi, Don. Hi, Tanya. <laughs> Today, we're going to be discussing Accidental Saints by Nadia Boltz-Weber, and the subtitle is Finding God in All the Wrong People. Love it. Love it. Yes, absolutely. This book was so much fun. <laughs> <laughs> On multiple pages, I have LOL, where I, you know, where yes. I like just laughed right out loud. Yes, um, she's so gritty and humble and yes. not afraid to put herself down a few pegs at every right. opportunity. And articulate about it. You know, I love that. Sassy and proud. Yes. Yes. So do we want to start, since she is from a liturgical tradition, she's a, yes. right, a Lutheran minister mm -hmm. from Denver, Colorado. We thought we would open with a liturgical style prayer, which isn't part of my tradition, but I really appreciate and value some of these older prayers that are part of the wisdom tradition in their own right. Mm -hmm. So this is from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, Father of all mercies, we, your unworthy servants, give you humble thanks for all your goodness and loving kindness to us and to all whom you have made. We bless you for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life, but above all for your immeasurable love in the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And we pray, give us an awareness of your mercies, that with truly thankful hearts we may show forth your praise, not only with our lips, but in our lives, by giving up ourselves to your service, and by walking before you in holiness and righteousness all our days, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be honor and glory throughout all ages. Amen. Amen. It was interesting um, reading her in that tradition, since it's not my experience at all. I felt sort of like an infatuation with a liturgical style for a while, but it didn't stick for me. You know, I'm not quite sure why. It's interesting to me. You know, at the time, I remember really wanting to dig into that and sort of get into a rhythm with that. And, and I had my own little things that I was doing. And but I found that it's it was a leap for me. It was really hard for me to feel myself present in that structure. And so I remember when we were uh, launching um, the church that I'm currently a part of, Stone Coast Community Church, we talked about liturgy in its most basic definition of like the work of the people. And that made sense to me, but I enjoy reading her through those lenses, even though it's not my lens. I guess I'll say it that way. I've been very fascinated by it, too. And I think it is somewhat missing from our tradition. Mm -hmm. And we have added in a few more elements at our church. We've tried to do more responsive readings. And it's a little uncomfortable just because, like anything that's unfamiliar, right? ironically, it's, it's sort of the traditional way to do church. But for our congregation, it's right. uncomfortable. Right. But it's good because it's, it's a way that we can participate. Right. And I feel like fundamentally participation from the congregation is missing in our tradition. Mm -hmm. It's a sit back. Someone had said once, it's a, it's a concert and a TED Talk. And that's, that's great, but it's sure. not participatory. Right. And the beautiful thing about the liturgy is that it, it gives the congregation a role to play that is in a rhythm and they know how to participate. Right. So I want to, to lean, do more of that. A way to lean in. Yeah. I, I just struggled with bringing my own self to it, but I am encouraged by knowing that that's happening, you know, kind of 
across the world, around the world at these times. And, you know, these specific readings are happening at this time. And I don't even have the right jargon for it. It's been so The lexicon? Long. Yes, yes. Yeah, and where every church that is, every Lutheran church is preaching on the same yes. verse that week. Right. And she talks about that right. in here, you know, and and it applying to, or, or I guess her her putting it on based on her own circumstances, you know, like what was happening in her life became a new way to read that scripture, which I don't know who coined that phrase of like, we read scripture, but it also reads us. And that's what I hear like through her whole, um, through this whole book, Accidental Saints, is her allowing scripture to read her in a very frank, you know, um, revealing way. Yes, and, and blunt and raw. And it forces her, in a really great way, to struggle through some verses that she might not have chosen. Yes, exactly. She has that one about the thief in the night. Yes! And so, it, because of her circumstances <laughs> that week, it forced her to kind of say, well, wait a minute, what does that mean? It sounds like Jesus is coming right. to well, there was ravage a, your house. A person, yeah, there was a person, you know, who had been attending it's House for All Sinners and Saints is the church in Denver, Colorado, I mentioned earlier. He comes from a tradition where the rapture was preached as a... Reality. Yeah, as a reality. So And so am I. Those scriptures about Thief in the Night, there was a movie, you know, and of course all the Left Behind series. Oh. Yeah. Can we just say the rapture is ridiculous? <laughs> I don't want anyone to get the wrong idea here. <laughs> yes. We've parked it in that category. I have to hold respect for that? I just can't. Well, I mean, I guess if it works for you, it, I'm not going to say, you know, one right. way or the other, yeah. but I know for me, it did not work for me. Even as a, a very young person, you know, I was in my teens and it just didn't lead to life. It didn't lead to connection and, you know, that kind of thing with the source. It was very fear-based. Right. And she says something in there about like, can we not ascribe to this kind of crazy, you know, or something like right. that? Uh, anyway, one it's of like, those laugh out loud terms. But in relationship with someone, you know, she understand like that the rapture is a thing that people talk about. And it is a thing that has impacted some of us negatively, positively, whatever. But negative is what mostly I've heard. And she had to read it differently and, and, and allow it to move past that mm, narrow view. And I love she comes up with the idea that what if Jesus is coming to steal our our self-obsession, coming yes. to steal our impatience, coming to steal right. our pride and our egomania, right. all of the bad stuff. Yes, she has a new fresh way of looking yeah. at it, which is fantastic. And that's the lexicon. You, she wouldn't maybe have chosen that verse. Right. And it was at, I think it's during um, Advent. She was saying, right. like, and there aren't really a lot of verses, there aren't really, really a lot of scripture references during that time about the birth of Christ. There are these kind of other odd things, which is interesting. These verses about being alert, keeping awake, yes. waiting. Right. Which is what Advent means, right. the waiting. Right. Expe expectantly. Yes. Mm -hmm. So do you have a quote you want to read? And then we can sort of I have sort respond? of a, a funny one. Okay. Um, because I was thinking about like what really sticks out to me about this book. And the first thing that I thought of, of course, is her unassuming realness. And so she says, um, it's my practice. And this is at the end of the book. So we're going to jump around. This doesn't go chronologically. But this is on page 178. She says, 
It's my practice to welcome new people to the church by making sure that they know that House for All Sinners and Saints will, at some point, let them down. <laughs> and this is a great quote. It's by a friend of hers, actually, that she's quoting. And she says, church isn't perfect. It's practice. And I love that. I wish that we had more of that, um, where we're not going to church to play the good person, play, you know, check our boxes, um, where we are going there to reveal, to un unveil some things about ourselves, to be vulnerable, to um, open ourselves to others and share honestly about what it's like to, to follow Christ, what it's like to live a flawed life, what it's like to have imperfections, what it's like to just engage in all of it, you know? And then it gives us all the opportunity to also see that in one another and then encourage one another, yes. remind each other who we are in Christ, right. forgive each other. And, and that is what community is. Otherwise, there is really no fellowship. Right. It's just a game. Right. It's a facade, like a dress up type of thing. Right. You know, uh, today's Halloween. So, you know, it's like a costume party at times. You know, you right. put on your good shoes, you put on your good face and act like nothing's wrong, and how dead that is. And we've all done it. If you've been in church at all, you, you've felt that. It reminds me of the AA movement, Alcoholics mm -hmm. Anonymous, where anybody that writes about that from a Christian perspective says their experience is that it is what church should be, Yes, which is a true revealing of brokenness yes. and acceptance and dependence on a higher power. Oops, the dog is groaning <laughs> <Sorry>. a little. <laughs> we put him to sleep. Uh-oh. He loves to join us during the podcast recording. It's very sweet. Let me just finish um, the last part of that about it being practice. She says, receiving grace is basically the best shitty feeling in the world. I don't want to need it. Preferably, I could just do it all and be it all and never mess up. And it's what we want, but it's not who we are. And recognizing that and being able to admit it, like um, there aren't a lot of Christian leaders who will stand in front of anyone, never mind put it in writing that they mess up. Um, and she, uh, like I said, articulates, she goes into detail <laughs> about her mess ups. And that is so uh, life-giving to me to hear that. One of the pieces that I knew I would, would talk about in this session, this episode, is the swearing thing. She swears knows like a truck how, driver. Yeah, she knows how <laughs> to use the F word in a sentence. <laughs> um, it rolls off the tongue. And I come from a background where that was absolutely not acceptable, more like a taboo even, to ever use profanity of any kind almost like you were harming people if you did. And I don't mean like cursing them out. I mean, like if you said, damn it, it was offensive. But there was also this odd thing about it that was prideful for me, where if that wasn't something that I was using in my life, I felt good about who I was. I was upstanding and trustworthy. I don't know what the words are, but you know, I was a good person. And my sister 
was also somebody who could swear like a truck driver and passionately follow Christ. It was a, a fantastic paradox that I got to witness in her life. And she died in 2016. She was 40. She died of cancer. And losing her unleashed <laughs> a floodgate of F-words for me. <laughs> it was part of my grief, definitely. And now for me, it's also sort of part of her legacy. I mean, it is a response in grief. I know it is. And I talked about this like publicly at church that time when we were reading Ephesians because there's all that stuff in there about don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. And I can't avoid that, you know, so I, I did say, I think I said something like I have a bit of a potty mouth. And that is the talk that people will still come to me and say, I have a whole new appreciation for you, which floors me, right? You know, because you never really know what's going to stick with people, you know, and it, it almost doesn't matter how much work you put into it. It's how it's how it's received. And that sort of leveling of the playing field, that is what I have found by being able to say the word fuck, that it puts me in contact with people that I wouldn't have been in contact with before, which has been really rich for me and really like a life-giving path. And so, you know, God can convict me of it and it may leave my life at some point. I, I don't want to cling to it. But at the same time, there's a bunch of pleasure in it as well. And I think fruit. Can I say that? Yeah. It sounds absurd, right? But that's what I feel like, you know, a sisterhood with her in a sense of reading it in her words and seeing the relationships that she has with people. Like this book is all about stories of her relationships and how those present themselves and how they connect to scripture. Right. So. And in her humility and revealing these mistakes she's made, mm -hmm. it's always funny. Yes. And I think it's part of her way of dealing with mistakes and forgiving herself and seeing her frailty. But the swearing is part of what makes it funny. Sure. And it's so satisfying. Yes. And relational. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I do want to say that there are people that I'm friends with now that I know if I didn't let that out a little bit, they would not feel comfortable with me. They would not feel at ease with me. So... I appreciate its value. It's a very valuable tool. <laughs> anyway, what would you like to well, talk about? Well, I wanted to talk about, this is a good example of what we were just talking about, okay. about her acknowledging her own brokenness in her very real way. Um, and this is near the beginning of the book. It's just on page nine. I was recently asked by an earnest young seminarian during a Q&A, Pastor Nadia, what do you do personally to get closer to God? Before I even realized I was saying it, I replied, What? Nothing. Sounds like a horrible idea to me. Trying to get closer to God? Half the time, I wish God would leave me alone. Getting closer to God might mean getting told to love someone I don't even like or to give away even more of my money. <laughs> it might mean letting some idea or dream that is dear to me get ripped away. My spirituality is most active, not in meditation, but in the moments when... I realize God may have gotten something beautiful done through me despite the fact that I am an asshole. <laughs> and when I am confronted by the mercy of the gospel so much that I cannot hate my enemies, and when I am unable to judge the sin of someone else, which, let's be honest, I love to do, because my own crap is too much in the way, and when I have to bear witness to another human being suffering despite my desire to be left alone, 
And when I am forgiven by someone, even though I don't deserve it, and my forgiver does this because he too is trapped by the gospel. And when traumatic things happen, and when traumatic things happen in the world, and I have nowhere to place them or make sense of them, but what I do have is a group of people who gather with me every week, people who will mourn and pray with me over the devastation of something like a school shooting. And when I end up changed by loving someone I'd never choose out of a catalog, but whom God sends my way to teach me about God's love. I just love that. It's beautiful. And she writes that last part all in verse, sort mm -hmm. of like a poem mm -hmm. or a mantra. It's beautiful. Right. And she has several examples of when she has been sort of a jerk, but then realized that unbeknownst to her, God has used it for good. God redeems it. Yeah. Yeah. I love this part on page 47 where she talks about being in a position of power. Okay. So here's a quote from page 47. Being the one who gets to serve is a position of power. No oh, matter how yeah. selfless I'd like to think I am, there's always something in it for me, even if it's the satisfaction of knowing I am a good Matthew 25 Christian, that I am being Christ-like to someone else. Yeah. And um, you had some interesting thoughts about that, about... Well, those two pages, 47 and 48, I underline... There's so much underlining, it's basically those two pages. And I remember the first time I read that, um, it stuck to me. It hit me so hard. The title of the chapter is We Aren't the Blessing. And she's referencing Matthew 25, you know, where the people are saying, you know, where did we see you, you know, and... And Jesus says, when you clothed the, the naked and you fed the hungry and you visited those in prison, like that's when you saw me. And she breaks that down in a way that I had never heard before. And so I have part of that too I'd like to read. Let me find the spot. I looked harder at Matthew 25 and realized that if Jesus said, I was hungry and you fed me, then Christ's presence is not embodied in those who feed the hungry, as important as that work is. But Christ's presence is in the hungry being fed. Christ comes not in the form of those who visit the imprisoned, but in the imprisoned being cared for. And to be clear, Christ does not come to us as the poor and hungry, because anyone for whom the poor are not an abstraction but actual flesh and blood people knows the poor and hungry and imprisoned are not a romantic special class of Christ-like people, and those who meet their needs are also not a romantic special class of Christ-like people. We all are equally as sinful and saintly as the other. Christ comes to us in the needs of the poor and hungry, needs that are met by another so that the gleaming redemption of God might be known. That connection, like in the act of either meeting a need or having a need be met, was like a light coming on, where I just said yes inside. And there was one experience that I had that reminds me of this, was I mentioned before that I went through a terrible season of lice when my kids were little, right? And also, during that time, my washing machine broke. I had to go to the laundromat like every day. And there was one laundromat um, downtown that stayed open, maybe not 24 hours, but they were open late. And I was there one night and there was nobody else there. And I was sitting there probably reading, but honestly, just feeling 
terrible for myself, like such a pity party. And there was a guy like running the place. Um, I don't know if he was the owner. And he came out from behind the counter and he said, I'll, I'll put it in context too. It was also close to Christmas time. Um, there might have been snow falling. Like in my mind, mm-hmm. in my memory, there's snow falling outside, right? And he came around the counter and he said, I just made some Portuguese soup. Would you like some? And I normally would say, no, thank you, you know. And I said, yes, <laughs> I'd actually love some. And he brought me this little bowl of soup and a little styrofoam bowl, you know, and the little plastic spoon. And it was love. And to be in a humble place, a place that I typically don't frequent, but I prefer not to frequent, to receive, to be on the receiving end, when because of my, my whiteness, my socioeconomic status, my ability to be the, you know, I've never been like the classroom mom, but, you know, to have time in my life and, and be able to give, you know, and see my life as a serving others type of life, because I have the freedom to do that, quite honestly, to be at a point of receiving was so humbling and rich. And that memory seared in my mind because of that, that Christ is in that moment, in the meaning of a need. And to be in touch with our brokenness enough to realize that we aren't always the givers, that we have to be on the receiving end as well. And if we're not, there's something off. That was a kind of a revolutionary experience for me. And and I think that that concept, it takes the pressure off yeah. in so many ways of feeling that, that bad, not healthy feeling that we have the burden of being Christ to others. Hmm. Right. I mean, it is, like you said, it's important work, but that little shift in how we think of it right. makes a big difference. And whether you're doing it from a place of freedom and reciprocity yeah, or whether it's this burden of I must do this because I am a person of privilege or, or right. because I am a Christ follower and there's this commitment or calling that it is. Yes, it's a calling and it's a commitment, but it's that little shift that we're in it together. Right. And the brotherhood, that, the sisterhood. Yeah, this is just a moment where it's going this way or that way. It doesn't really matter who's giving and who's receiving. It's that it's going in a circle. Right. Right. So the scripture reading that we chose to go with us is Jonah, (laughs) which was perfect because she has an entire chapter about comparing herself to Jonah when she is asked to speak at a mega youth conference and she doesn't want to go and she doesn't think she's the right person. And she keeps saying no Finally, she says yes, and then she writes a speech that she hates, and everybody that she knows that knows about youth (laughs) tells her it's terrible, and she should do it this way or that way, but that it ends up being another experience where, although she thought she had nothing to offer and she didn't want to do it with every fiber of her being, Mm -hmm. God used her in a massive way, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's funny, and... And she has that connecting point with the girl on the plane, right? the girl with the pink bangs, and... um, it shifts things for her, you know, it makes it personal. And I thought that was fantastic. I can relate to so many times, almost anything that I'm asked to do, my first response is no. I might not always say no immediately, but my mind is saying, nope, no thank you. (laughs) I have too much going on. But I usually get to the yes, you know, when it's something that is mine. 
and that's what she was talking about, you know, this thing that she didn't really want to do and is telling herself, like, how did I ever get myself into this and all that angst and anxiety it was just hilarious to read. But then kind of what she describes as finding the person in that, the proximity in that, which is what I think is the key in so many ways, kind of like what, you know, we talked about with Richard Rohr, like, are we settled in reality? Like, are we settled so that reality can get to us? How do we put ourselves in places where we can be present with people that we would perceive as someone not like us, you know? Well, and Jonah doesn't have the opportunity to have that personal connection. Right. But the thing for me about Jonah that I just loved is he's so angry and he does really have such resentment for all of these people, all of the Ninevites. Mm -hmm. He has no personal connection. He has no desire to help them or see them be redeemed. And he's fuming. He's fuming as they are fasting and wearing sackcloth and getting right with God. He's out in the desert, like stamping his feet and fuming. And God sends him this plant and he appreciates that. But then a worm eats it. And then he's really angry again. And it says twice, God repeats himself. He says, is it right for you to be angry? And it's just kind of left hanging. And then it moves on to the next section, which has the worm. And then again, he says, you didn't cause this to grow. You didn't create these people. You didn't create Nineveh. Is it right for you to be so angry that I want to redeem them? Uh-huh. And it's so deep. It just, it resonates with me a lot uh-huh. that we, we want our way. Right. And to say, is it right for us to be resentful about these things, these hard tasks, <laughs> or to be, to judge God in whom he chooses to bless? Right. And how do we get to a place where we can give a wholehearted yes to something that feels hard or challenging or too much more energy than I have right now? And there is a time when it's right to be angry. Sure. Right. And I see that as a mother, you know, like you see your kids. It's so great because it's so crystal clear when Uh it's a child that there's times when it's right for them to be angry. You know, a sibling Mm -hmm. shoved them or ripped up their artwork or something like that. But there's other times, one of my children in particular, will get very angry about something that it's just because he's in a bad mood, really, Uh but he can't see that Uh or that he's built up some irritation for other reasons. And he's really angry at It all comes out in this one thing. Uh And I'm thinking, is it right for you to be angry about that? Uh (laughs) Like (laughs) other things. So I just wanted to make that clear that it is right to be angry. There is righteous anger, and God gets angry. Jesus gets angry. Thank God, but right? But it's, um, what's the motivation? What's behind it? That right. whiny self-interest. Right. Wanting it to go your way. Thinking um, people are not deserving your judgment, your whole way you see the world. <laughs> and she embodies that so much. Yes. Both the acknowledging when she's judging, and then sort of slapping herself for it and then forgiving herself and laughing all the while and being used in spite you know in spite of herself that god uses us god the goodness is still brought forward the beauty is still brought forward when we engage as limited or as you know flawed as we are i wish i was thinking about that part um she does have a paragraph in here that starts with why christian which is Uh interesting because she started a conference that is now called Evolving Faith, but right. that was originally called Why Christian. Mm-hmm. Sort of exploring some of these challenges about is the church still valuable? What what does it mean to us as society mm-hmm. or individually? And I thought it was just so beautiful for those of us that have sometimes wondered, like, what am I doing here anyway? 
So on page 10, she says, there are many reasons to steer clear of Christianity, no question. I fully understand why people make that choice. Christianity has survived some unspeakable abominations, the Crusades, clergy sex scandals, papal corruption, televangelist scams, and clown ministry. <laughs> but it will survive us too. It will survive our mistakes and pride and exclusion of others. I believe that the power of Christianity, the thing that made the very first disciples drop their nets and walk away from everything they knew, the thing that caused Mary Magdalene to return to the tomb and then announce the resurrection of Christ, the thing that the early Christians martyred themselves for and the thing that keeps me in the Jesus business, or what my Episcopal priest friend Paul calls working for the company, is something that cannot be killed. The power of unbounded mercy of what we call the gospel cannot be destroyed by corruption and toothy TV preachers. <laughs> because in the end, there is still Jesus. And I can't, I can't shake Jesus, though I've tried. I love, and I love that. I love that. That idea of our transformation, our conversion, isn't something that we do. It's something done to us. She says, you know. Jesus is running my ass down. Right, you know? right. I love that. But it's not a choice. It, and, and that makes me think of the notion of being a called out, being called out. Yes. The compelled life mm -hmm. that you might not want it. I sometimes I wonder where it came from. I grew up in a very, very secular home in a secular community. Uh -huh. How did I ever? But I couldn't <laughs> resist it. It was just always there knocking at the door. Right. Um, Anne Lamott has a book that I read early on that I loved where she describes it as a little stray kitty. Uh -huh. Jesus as a little stray kitty cat that's following her around town. And she keeps like shutting the door so it can't get into her apartment. <laughs> and then finally, one day she just opens the door and says, okay, you can come, come in. in. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like that was a little bit my experience uh -huh. in the beginning. But just being inexplicably drawn to it. That's so encouraging to me from as somebody who was brought up where basically your your whole job as a Christian was to get other people to see it. Like, I have to ask you this. Do you know what clown ministry is? No. <laughs> Allow me okay. to explain to you. It's so fitting that you're wearing a Batman costume I... today and I can say this to you. <laughs> I read that and I thought, I don't know what that means, but I, I can tell like, by the way you way. read it. Clown ministry. It's usually a group of you get together and become clowns. Like there's no smoke and mirrors there. Makeup, You're a clown. Makeup. Red noses. Red nose. Yes. And then you go out onto the streets and you clown your way around to showing people that, you know, Jesus died on the cross for them. And there's a whole, the atonement strategy is told through, you know, clowning. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Now, Were you ever I was never a clown, but I have been around them. And I was the person behind the puppet stage. So I was doing puppet ministry as the, at the time while there was clown ministry also going on. So there, you have oh, that too. Oh, now I know. And anyone else who reads this book that just kind of has no idea. It's like, whatever. They just You've part been enlightened now yes. about the rapture and clown ministry. That's important <laughs> to know. Yeah. Another quote that I wanted to read is about mercy. That You hear that through this entire book over and over and over again. And you need to hear it. That's what's so moving and like it pulls at you. She has this chapter in there about Judas, who we have caricatured, you know, basically he's the guy with the horns now. Do you know what I mean? 
I won't go into it because it's a really important chapter, I think. And you really have to read it. You have to read it. You have to. It is. And it is like, a, for me, it was another light bulb moment. Yes. Where when she makes this comparison between Peter and Judas. That yes. It just, it was the gospel truth. Absolutely. As Richard Rohr would say, you read it and you just think, how could we have been so simplistic about the way we think about Judas? Right. And excuse ourselves. Right. Right. There's a whole bunch in there. Yeah. Right? That so launches me into like 10 questions, you know, that I want to like blurt out, but I'm not going to. I want to read on page 160. The adjective so often coupled with mercy is the word tender, but God's mercy is not tender. This mercy is a blunt instrument. And that hit me like a blunt instrument. Absolutely. She says, mercy doesn't wrap a warm limp blanket around offenders. God's mercy is the kind that kills the thing that wronged it and resurrects something new in its place. In our guilt and remorse, we may wish for nothing but the ability to rewrite our own past. But what's done cannot, will not be undone. But I'm here to say that in the mercy of God, it can be redeemed. I cling to the truth of God's ability to redeem us more than perhaps any other. I have to. I need to. I want to. It reminds me about the, the way she talks about confession and absolution. Yes. And that is one of the things about the liturgy that I think yes. is so strong because they they have a structure around confessing and absolution every week. Mm-hmm. And you can argue about whether everyone's feeling it at that moment, if it's spirit-led or, or what have you. But it's that repetition of forgiveness and grace over and over again, right, um, that is missing sometimes when we choose what we want to talk about at church. Right. Because we don't want to talk about how we need to be forgiven. It's just human nature that we right. want. We're independent. We want to be right. And it's it's counterintuitive to every week say, I am a miserable sinner. Forgive me. Right. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Christ have mercy. Mm-hmm. And that's the beautiful thing about the liturgy. And sometimes you might be coming into church not really feeling like you need to ask for forgiveness or not really being in touch with the desire for that mercy. Like you said, like we don't want to be in a position where we need it. Right. But then being in the room and hearing the words can remind us of our brokenness when sometimes we just float above it. Right. And there's so many dangers without it. I mean, there's the fine line of repetition, creating something that you no longer pay any attention to. Right. So we've all seen that. Right. When you go into a church and everybody is just somewhere else. Right. So, you know, you're just going through the motions. Right. If there's still the invitation there, you know, that you can participate in or not. But creating that awareness in yourself that you need forgiveness. Sometimes I think we're so far from that as Christians. We're so far from that as people who attend church. And how do you how do you access that in a real way? That's one of the questions I have, you know. Can I stay aware of my brokenness in an authentic way? Can I name my sin? You know, she says somewhere in here like, We're not punished for our sins. We're punished by our sins. And if we don't name them, there's no healing. No. And they rule us without us even knowing. Right. It reminds me of the Richard Rohr book, like facing those demons in the desert. Like if you haven't faced down the insipid desire to be powerful and to be right and to be successful, successful, then that is what is ruling your life. Absolutely. 
and ha- you have to do it over and over and over again. Yes, because it's, it's subtle. Yeah, and it cre- you, you know you might have a a really healthy season where you're in touch with it, right, in a healthy way, and then you forget, right. And that's why we need church because we need to remind each other, right. Like, don't forget, you have to keep facing this stuff over and over again, and you have to keep being able to accept the grace, right, mercy back and right. forth, right. Yeah, there's a great story that she includes in here by one of her parishioners. And I'd like to read it. It's on page 167. The parishioner's name is Jeff. He posted this on a Facebook page, their group page. I struggle with despising people and not even for very good reasons. The guy in the massive pickup who's tailgating me, the smarmy boulder business types eating hundred dollar lunches, the horrifically overconfident mom sharing her conversation with the entire coffee shop. <laughs> I somehow find the energy to mentally eviscerate such people every single day. I'm a hater. I realize that I do this, and I realize that I do this because I'm a person who, well, does this sort of thing. And how do you become something that you're not? I've been looking for tools to help me break out of this ridiculous cycle, something to help me see others as more than caricatures or embodiments of trends I despise. And I found such a tool. When I served some of you communion on a recent Sunday at House for All, I looked at you, gave you bread, and said, Child of God, the body of Christ broken for you. Child of God, child of God. We're all children of God, and we've been given the authority, even the duty, to declare that to each other. And I find myself on US 36 with another asshole embodying so much of what I despise. And in my mind, I bless them, I look in their eyes, hold up the bread and say, child of God. When you want to hold up the finger, (laughs) say. (laughs) I thought that was brilliant as a tool, like an actual tool to move forward and that leveling of the playing field asshole child of god (laughs) i can relate to that well we're going to read the phyllis tickle book next yes we are what's it called again the great emergence how christianity is changing and why so this book was foundational for us i would say in terms of just expanding our view of what church is in a historical context and it was so exciting it made me feel like, oh, no wonder we're having so much tension and angst over church and if it's valuable or if it's not. Right. And it was mind-blowing and comforting at the same time. Yes, yes. So, but you need some time to read it. It's not a big book, but it is dense. Yes, yes. <laughs> and she uh, passed away a few years ago, mm-hmm. but she was a really brilliant thinker and contributed so much. So... That'll be fun. It will be fun. Yes. And I'm excited for people that haven't been aware of her to to have that experience. Me too. So should we close with so a prayer from close. Nadia's book? Yes. So I had the idea um, at the end of the book, it's on page, starts on page 185. And I thought we would take turns kind of going back and forth and reading these. Okay. Okay. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the preschoolers who cut in line at communion. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven. 
and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who have buried their loved ones for whom tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are the motherless, the alone, the ones from whom so much has been taken. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who no one else notices. The kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables, the laundry guys at the hospital, the sex workers, and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the losers and the babies and the parts of ourselves that are so small, the parts of ourselves that don't want to make eye contact with a world that loves only the winners. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the teens who have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms. Blessed are the meek. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who never catch a break, the ones for whom life is hard, for Jesus chose to surround himself with people like you. Blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the foster kids and trophy kids and special ed kids and every other kid who just wants to feel safe and loved. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are those who know there has to be more than this because they are right. Blessed are those who make terrible business decisions for the sake of people. Blessed are the burned out social workers and the overworked teachers and the pro bono caseworkers. Blessed are the kind-hearted NFL players and the fundraising trophy wives. <laughs> Blessed are the kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed are they who hear that they are forgiven. Blessed is everyone who has ever forgiven me when I didn't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful, for they totally get it. Go Amen. in mercy. Go in grace. Hey there. Thank you for joining us. If you're curious about some of our other book conversations, you can visit us at our website, which is giftgirls.blog. And we also have the link there for the paired scripture reading, which for this is the book of Jonah. All right. Thanks for joining us. That's it for now. Bye.